Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas. It's July 26, 2020. Today I've gone back in time to 1843 to talk about an opinion from the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas, a legal dispute about the sale of a slave. The court's treatment of the law itself, while a little dated at times in the language it uses, is familiar territory in business law, and with a little updating, it would not be out of place in a court today. But the subject matter of the case, a contract for the sale of another human being, is chilling. Today, by looking at how casually these judges approach the topic of human slavery, I hope that we can gain some insights on our own rhetoric about the continuing legacy of slavery in our society today. The year is 1843. The Republic of Texas is seven years old. Financially, the country is a wreck. It was not in great shape to start with, but now it is near bankruptcy after a global crash in cotton prices, the main export of the young republic. On the map, the republic is surrounded by strong and unfriendly powers. To the south, there's Mexico, who really wants Texas back. To the east, there's the United States and its uh, vision of its manifest destiny to go all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And to the north and the west, there are the Comanche, who have built an extraordinarily uh, talented cavalry fighting force and who are aggressively defending their hunting grounds on the Great Plains against Texan expansion. In short, not much is working very well, and indeed in less than two years, Texas will give up on independence and become the 28th state in the United States. But even with all of the instability, uh, the Republic of Texas has a fundamentally strong economy, and with it, it has a functioning and reliable court system. The Constitution of the Republic set up a system of courts across the country. Each county had one, maybe two, and there was a right of appeal to that to a Supreme Court. There was little delay in getting the Supreme Court up and established, but by 1843, the Republic of Texas had a Supreme Court, had several judges on it, met in a regular schedule, and produces a steady stream of opinions. If you study the opinions, some of them are very superficial. You can almost hear a judge dictating them, maybe while spitting a little tobacco out in between the words, but there are others that are very scholarly. The young republic had a lot of very complex property law issues. Old Spanish and Mexican land grants were banging into conveyances under English and American law by the new settlers. And there's some very thoughtful scholarly analyses that sort through these issues and resolve how the issues of property should go forward. And of course, because part of that property that was being bought and sold as a part of the economy of the day was slavery, it's something that the Republic of Texas Supreme Court addresses and not infrequently. And that topic is what brings me to Austin in 1843, the Republic of Texas Supreme Court and the case of Walker versus McNeil. It's over a century ago, but some things in litigation never change. This case involves a family that just didn't get along. The record of the case shows that D.R. and E.B. Walker sued two defendants, J.G. McNeil and R.M. Calder. I guess people like to use initials back then. The Walkers, the opinion tells us, had conveyed certain lands and slaves to the defendants to hold in trust for some other family members. In this lawsuit, the Walkers wanted that conveyance set aside. So put simply, some members of the Walker family wanted their stuff back from other members of the Walker family. 
Before the case got to the Supreme Court of Texas, there was a jury trial, one of the county courts. It doesn't say which one. And the question there was whether there was duress on the walkers when they signed the deed. The judge gave a charge to the jury. It was kind of long and flowery. And there again, that's something that never changes because we often try to make our jury charges more complicated than they need to be. But the key part of it, I'll read to you exactly as the jury heard it at the trial back in 1842. The judge told them this, duress is of two kinds, duress of imprisonment, where the person is confined, and duress of threats, where the act of violence is declared or hanging over the party. The fear of losing one's property is no duress, because the injury may be repaired by damages, but no adequate atonement can be made for the loss of life or limb or liberty or ignominious punishment. The walkers lost at trial. The jury heard the evidence, and it found there was no duress on them. The conveyance stood. They appealed to the Supreme Court of the Republic, and they said the judge had not stated the law correctly. It asked for an additional instruction, so that should have been given, and I will read to you that now, verbatim, exactly as their counsel argued it to the Republic Supreme Court in 1843. He asked for this. When a party is subjected to undue influence of extreme terror, or threats or apprehensions short of duress and executes a deed under such circumstances, it is void. The Texas Supreme Court agreed with the Walkers. They didn't have any cases to cite. The court had only been around for a few years, so it hadn't developed its own body of law. But it turned for a reference to a book called Commentaries on Equity Jurisprudence. It was a treatise that was popular back then, written by Joseph Story, who was on the Supreme Court of the U.S., Harvard Law School. And he had written a long and historic work showing how uh, the, the practice of American courts on certain legal issues traced back to England and before it to Greek philosophers and the Emperor Justinian. And based on that long pedigree, as summarized by Mr. Story, the court had this to say about the instruction. Nowhere do we find that the threats of violence, which are the inducement to a particular act, must be made at the very time and place of execution of that act, the court said. It concluded, it is for the jury to say, when those threats and circumstances are proven, whether they are sufficient to induce such fear as might move a man of ordinary firmness to the execution of his deed. And with that, the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas reversed the judgment and remanded for a new trial. A little bit flowery, the language, but the upshot of it is pretty clear. To prove duress, to prove you were under a stress that made you not capable of signing a contract, you don't have to have a gun pointing at you. You can just be threatened with violence or loss of property, and as long as that threat is credible, that can be a defense to a contract or some other obligation that you've been forced to assume. Going forward, the law books do not say what happened to the walkers in their case. I'm sure some county record will trace the title of any real property that was conveyed. We know what's going to happen to slavery, though. The Emancipation Proclamation is almost exactly 20 years away from the date of this opinion. And with that knowledge in hindsight that we have today, we can marvel at how blind this court was to the issue of slavery that was sitting before it. Start at the very beginning of the case. The walkers have names, albeit initials, but they have names. So do the two people that they sued. But there is no name for the slaves. They are simply identified in very legalese way of speaking as the, quote, certain slaves. They appear once at the beginning of the opinion, 
they're never referred to again, even though it's their life that's being decided by the outcome of this case. And the double standard, it's just extraordinary. A contract to sell a slave can be set aside if there is duress, which the Supreme Court defines as can be terror or threats or apprehensions, using its language. But slavery itself, no question about it, even though, of course, it was maintained as a system precisely by terror and threats and apprehensions. And remember the reasoning that the court used. It said that duress is a valid defense because, in its language, no adequate atonement can be made for the loss of liberty or ignominious punishment. Of course, the very definition of slavery is the loss of liberty, as it is the complete absence of any liberty for the slave. And slavery was enforced by cruel punishments that surely would have been classified as ignominious by these judges if they had found themselves confronted with them. What can we take with us from this opinion for our lives today? I suggest two questions. The first is from the beginning of this opinion, where they simply overlook the name of the human being or names of the slaves whose lives are being directed by the outcome of this case. Do we sometimes forget about names, or do we just talk about groups or the other side or what have you? Do we sometimes forget when we talk about a policy issue or question of law or a question of what to do in our society, do we forget that there are real human beings who have names that are affected by those decisions and that care about them? And second, do we apply a double standard? We enjoy speaking about our freedoms as Americans and the equal opportunities that we have, and those are certainly great things. But sometimes, in some contexts, when we talk about those matters, do we miss part of the picture, an important part of the picture, and fail to recognize that there may be some person or some group of people that, for whatever reason, does not have full access to those freedoms and to those opportunities, and that lack of access colors our ability to fully understand the issue that we think we're talking about and focused on. Ultimately, I think those two questions lead to the same basic reminder. When we think about justice, when we think about social policy, do we miss the forest sometimes for the trees? In Walker versus McNeil, the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas focused on a tree, an issue of contract law that they literally went and looked up the answer to in a law book, and they missed the forest. Slavery, the institution that was going to plunge the nation into a civil war within 20 years from the date of that opinion. Do we sometimes also miss the forest for the trees? Today on the Coal Mine Podcast, we explored Walker versus McNeil, decided by the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas in 1843. If you asked those judges what they had decided that day, they would have said it was an issue of contract law, a question of whether a conveyance of property could be set aside because of duress. In hindsight, we look at it and marvel at how those judges applying the law focused entirely on the issue of that contract and had nothing to say about the real issue of liberty that was presented to them, the liberty of the slave whose future was being determined by how they decided the outcome of that contract case. 
Law schools organize their teaching around what is called the case study method, where instead of just looking at different rules of law, students and their professors look at famous cases in areas of law and work through what the issues were, why the parties made the arguments they did, and why the court came at it from the perspective that it did, stating the rule that it did. In upcoming episodes on the Coal Mind podcast, I hope that we have the chance to use the case study method some more as we did today with Walker versus McNeil, looking at some other cases from history, some famous, some not so famous, and that by that study of these past cases, we can learn more things about the issues that we face in our society today. I want to give special thanks to my old friend Courtney Perez for her help with today's podcast and to thank my college classmate, Susan Levine, who has performed the music that I'm using in the background on this podcast. You can follow the Coal Mine Podcast on Spotify and iTunes. I appreciate you listening and look forward to sharing with you again soon.